0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is a podcast about close observation. Today on the show, I am joined by the artist and writer Jenny Odell. Jenny is the author of a really great new book called How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy, as well as one of my truly absolute favorite pieces of design writing of the last few years this really fascinating essay called There's No Such Thing as a Free Watch. As a visual artist, she was the artist-in-residence at Recology SF, also sometimes known as The Dump, and the San Francisco Planning Department, and her work's been exhibited all around the world. She also teaches design at Stanford. Jenny originally studied literature in undergrad, but then went on to get an MFA in design, and this is where we start the conversation. I was really interested in talking to her about this early interest in both text and image, and the relationship she sees between them, and how... They both are a big part of her practice. We also talk about the book, How to Do Nothing and her writing process. The book is is a really interesting book that uh, I admit is kind of hard to describe. And I was really curious about how she thought about it and wanted for it and how she describes it and what she thinks the book is about. And of course, we talk about teaching. We talk about the classes she teaches, how she kind of teaches art to sometimes non-art students. And how she encourages her students to experiment and fail and and try new things. Like I said, I've I've been a big fan of, of Jenny's for a while. I've assigned her essay. There's no such thing as a free watch in many of my classes. And How to Do Nothing is just another favorite read of this year. So it was a real pleasure to have her on the show to talk about both her approach and her work. If you're a fan of the podcast and wanna help support it, remember that you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind the scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism and previews the upcoming episodes. This podcast is fully supported through these memberships, so if you would like to help with the ongoing production of Scratching the Surface, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy my conversation with Jenny O'Dell. One of the kind of profiles of you that I read, I read, it mentioned that you studied undergrad, uh, you studied English at Berkeley. And then after that, were interested in applying to graphic design, MFAs. Uh, And that was a part of your history that I did not know until Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was preparing for this. And it it got me excited and helped explain a lot of the career that you've had. And so I kind of want to start by going back (laughs) to that Mm -hmm. moment. Um, what was it about graphic design that you were interested in coming out of an English degree? What was your relationship to graphic design? How did, uh, why did you think that's kind of where you wanted to, to go?
1: Um, I, to be totally honest, I don't think it was super well thought out. It was this kind of, um, basically I was an English major and I was like a very, you know, English majors, English major. Like my thesis was on Emily Dickinson. Um, (laughs) uh, And I, but I had also been taking art classes, you know, not, I don't even have an art minor. I just was taking them on the side and I had made art, you know, since I could remember. Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's clear to me now that they come from the same part of my brain, but like when you're in a school and and things are in different departments, like it can be sort of confusing. Um, And so I think I thought that graphic design would be this way that I could have both. Like mm. Because it's a form, you know, it's so much bound up with communication, but it's also visual. Mm. And I um, had taken some really amazing poetry classes. And I think there is like an a, an overlap. I actually think I wrote this in my my um, application to MFA programs to sort of explain why an English major is is applying to this program where, you know, like poetry, it has a lot in common with graphic design, um, because it has to do with like where the words are and the ordering and the context and, and all that. Um, and then you know, of course, I didn't actually end up doing graphic design. Like the I, I have an MFA in design, but yeah. uh, it's definitely not graphic design.
0: Um, so yeah. So what what is it? Because I was I in the in the that profile where you mentioned that uh, it's at the San Francisco Art Institute, and it was called Design Technology or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's now called Art and Technology, but at the time it was okay. called Design and Technology um what was that what what does that even mean (laughs) it's honestly a good question I um uh that school is very interdisciplinary um Mm. and so you know I had friends who were like technically painting MFAs who were making like sculptures and you know people in new genres making film and you know it's just you know once you got in it was kind of like you know Uh, it's almost like a department in name only. I mean, that's more Mm -hmm. true for some than others. Um, And, and also the, the design and technology department was comparatively small. So I don't think it had, um, and it was newer. So it didn't have as much of an identity as say, like the photography department has a really long Mm -hmm. legacy at SFAI. So um, it was, you know, it's, it's good and bad. Uh, I felt like I was on my own in a lot of ways, um, which I think prevented me from maybe like doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing, um, because mm-hmm. there was no supposed to. <laughs> um, right. But it was also, you know, I definitely felt like the first semester I had been like thrown into some like thrown into a, an ocean and just like like waiting or just like you know a treading water
0: um yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. figured out what i was doing so yeah. i feel like that's what grad school that first semester rest was supposed to be like that no matter what though
1: that i mean that makes me feel better because i i really like it was really i i would like st- i mean i tell my students about this all the time not kind of like as as to encourage them where you know i tell them like i i showed up and i just I, every time i would start making something i would either get halfway done and decide that it was just a stupid idea or I would never yeah. even start making it in the first place. And I yeah. had this bag or maybe it was a cardboard box in the corner of my studio that had like just random materials in it. I remember it literally had like a spring coming out of it. Like it looked like something from a cartoon and it, it just said first semester bag of shame. Like that's what <laughs> I just put it, like, cause in case anyone was wondering what that was. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't that's produce amazing. like anything the entire first semester.
0: Did, so did you, I mean, you, you said you felt like you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing or that, you know, you didn't have that guidance. Were you still thinking, even though it wasn't a graphic design program, and I promise this whole conversation won't be about <laughs> your, you know, <laughs> 22-year-old ambition to be a graphic designer <laughs> or whatever, Um, did you still have that mindset that you were supposed to be doing what you thought graphic design was, or what was your feeling there? Did were you interested in this confusion what was that like for you
1: um i think i was just kind of like too, just too busy being confused to right. i don't know i mean cuz i i actually did at that point i had an idea of what what graphic design would like typically be because um let's see it was like the summer between my junior and senior year in undergrad, I I went I did a graphic design like summer program at Parsons.
0: Mm. Oh, nice!
1: Yeah, and so and that was pretty like I, I mean I remember it as being pretty straightforward. Like the the morning was all analog stuff, and then, that's actually an interesting distinction now. The morning was analog, and the afternoon was digital.
0: That is interesting.
1: Um, and. Huh. I remember that the instructor of the digital part was the person who had made the Brokeback Mountain poster. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> okay, um,
0: I don't know who that is.
1: I don't. I don't remember her okay. name, but I remember being really impressed by that. Um, okay. Yeah, and so I, you know, um, it's funny because when I when I applied to these MFA programs, not realizing that they weren't straightforward graphic design, <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no portfolio other than what I had made. During that summer program, and so I just made up these assignments for myself, like based on what had been in those classes. And I bought a thirty-day trial of Photoshop and Illustrator. <laughs> and nice. I just tried to make the rest of my
0: portfolio that way. Um, and this is the portfolio that you use to like like get into the programs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I love that.
1: <laughs> so um, yeah, that's really funny to look at now. But but I do think that um, like you know, when I look at the stuff that I eventually did end up making, um, in grad school, um, it is very much, uh, you can, I mean, it's still about design. Like there's, you know, I made those mm-hmm. pieces where I cut out things from, you know, like 125 swimming pools from Google <laughs> earth and right. arranged them. Or, you know, the, I took a virtual road trip across the U S via street view. And that's a book, you know, that has to arrange yeah. all of this information, yeah. like quotes from people's trip advisor reviews and, screenshots and so it you know I think the one thing that didn't change from the beginning was just like this idea of um, arrangement and like the importance of context
0: yeah I mean and that's why I kind of wanted to start there because I felt like you know I don't I don't mean to kind of put up definitions around work or what is and what is not graphic design but I always thought your work had a certain graphic design Leaning to it, Yeah. if you know what I mean, and so when I was, you know, preparing for this, and I, I saw that in this one profile that I read, suddenly all of this kind of connected for me, and I was like, okay, this this starts to make sense, and so I I I, I, I know we won't stay in this time of your life forever. Um, <laughs> it, it sounds like. You were aware that you were interested in both the visual and the the verbal or the language from an early age, and even when you were studying English, you were taking art classes, uh, and that when you were applying for, for MFA programs, you were aware of this connection. How... How did you see that connection then? And how do you see it now? Because you're still somebody that's making visual work and, and written work. How do those start to kind of talk to each other? Or um, when did you realize that that could actually be kind of one activity or an activity that is connected in some way?
1: I think I probably pretty early on, at least could sense that they had something in common. Whereas like now, I barely make the distinction. Like, I think that probably if someone were to like map out what's happening in my brain, when like I'm writing a chapter of this book versus like making a a collage or something. I, I think it's probably something very similar Um, Mm -hmm. because they're both just processes of like, like actually, so I remember I had a really key experience in high school, which was, I took an English class and uh, it was yeah my senior year and I had a really amazing teacher and she was trying, she was basically teaching us like how to trace, like find and trace a theme through a book like through a novel mm-hmm. um and uh so you had to first you had to identify some some pattern right and then you had to kind of like go read through it like looking for that and i remember i did my I, maybe we all wrote about an invisible man but anyway i wrote this essay about an invisible man where i had noticed that in all of these kind of key moments in the narrative like when he's like disappointed by something he ends up going down some stairs or going down elevator like there's always this like mm-hmm. image of like instance, going down yeah. somewhere And, um, and I really loved writing that paper. Like I still remember it and I think about it a lot now because I still do that. You know, like when I am researching something, I'm just, and it's not just books, right? It's like every conversation I have, every movie I see, like just anything that I happen to come across, like events that I go to, it's all kind of like almost involuntarily like passing through this filter all the Mm -hmm. time. And it's just like, what is the shape of the filter is the only thing that really changes. Um, and that includes visual materials. So I think, you know, when I'm scrolling across Google earth, looking for something, it's the same exact thing. Like you're just looking for something that you've already, you already have some idea of, and then you're just collecting this big pile of those things. And then the question is just like, how can I order these in a way that makes either a new argument or reanimates my original fascination with them?
0: That's so, when, when did you realize, I love that by the way, it reminds me, um, of, uh, I interviewed the designer, d- designer Michael Rock, who's a principal at the design studio 2x4, and he originally studied English, or English literature and poetry in undergrad, I think, and then went on to be a, a graphic designer, and he had this great quote when I talked to him that he sees uh, graphic design as an elaborate form of writing, in that uh, it is this way, it's just, it's taking these pre-existing things, words punctuation sentences and kind of putting collaging them together in new ways. And design is doing that also. It's taking images and typefaces. And, and I think that's, it's actually like a great definition of your work also, because you're kind of taking these things uh, and putting them together in in new ways. Um, yeah, you have a you have a quote, I, I can't remember if it was in the book, or if it was in in an interview where uh, the one work you did for the the dump where you kind of collected all this stuff. And so on. So did you make anything? (laughs) And I feel like that's like very emblematic of this whole idea of what design is. Actually. I didn't make that connection until you were just saying that.
1: Yeah. Right. That woman was, yeah. She asked me, did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? Right. And, uh, and I was like, wow, like put things on shelves is such a great description of what I do. (laughs) I'm just like constantly like collecting things and putting them on shelves, like either like literally or metaphorically um and
0: yeah i mean this this is actually a a, an interesting way to connect to the book because i i have two questions that i want to start with about the book and i i really enjoyed it and it was not at all what i was expecting it to be and if you asked me what i was expecting it to be i I couldn't tell you i i've been thinking about this all morning to prepare for this (laughs) um and my my first question is i've over the process of, of reading the book, I started talking to a bunch of people about it and and things that I was thinking about related to, to what you were writing about. And I had the hardest time describing what this book was about. And I don't mean I, I mean that as a compliment. Every time I think I know what it's about, you would take a turn. <laughs> and it would be about something else. How do you describe this book?
1: Uh, I honestly have like as much of a hard time as the next person. Um, okay. and which is, you know, a problem cause I get asked that a lot, <laughs> you
0: know, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: even like, you know, when I was working on it, uh, last summer, it's like, cause I spent all my time working on it and it's like, you know, obviously my friends would want to know what it was about. Um, and yeah. like, you know, it's like, as soon as I say the title, it's like, I have to qualify it. Cause I'm like, Oh no, it's not like this, you know, like how to be creative or, you know, like how to have a nice like vacation or something, right? Um, right. Yeah, and so I mean, I guess i I, I, f- I think like one maybe like one of the phrases that I find like comes up a lot when I when I do try to describe it is like um, this idea of like attending to what is in front of you, um, mm. which is like kind of the most obvious part of my argument, where it's like. Um, just as like reminder um, to, it's like, yeah. it goes back to putting things on shelves, right? It's like, it's me, right. it's just me reminding you or like providing some framework for you to just have access to the thing that's already in front of you. That's been there all along. Um, I mean, as like a, you know, I feel like I, you know, I have a bird watching metaphor for everything, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you can imagine, because there's a lot yeah. of bird watching in the book. But um, when I, when I go birdwatching, I always actually forget to look right in front of me. Um, mm. and so I have my binoculars and I'm like looking around, you know, in the trees or far away or I'm, like, you know, cause I'm thinking about like how I'm going to have to, you know, spot this very small thing that's going to be far away. And I, several times have like walked right up to like some really special or like rare bird that was right in front of my mm. face. And then it like flies yeah. away because I just like barged up to, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, wow, that's like such a, you know, it's like this weird example of like forgetting, like if you're always looking over there, like I'm always looking like, you know, worrying, like looking into the future or whatever. And it's like, you're forgetting that there's this, there's something really important. That's like right in front of your face. I
0: I, I agree with that. I think that's actually a, a really good way to, to describe what it's about. But I, I, I also want to ask you about this idea. You mentioned early on in the book about how, how, this term self-care has kind of lost some of its meaning. That wasn't your exact phrasing, but, you know, that there's kind of more to it than the way we kind of think about it now. And I think the way you just described the book, it would be very easy for someone to think that this is like a self-help book. This is just a book about being present or mindful. Mm, right, right. And and even that is kind of over overly simplified. And so the reason I asked you what it was about is because I, I was curious about your process of writing it. Um, and I feel like with a different editor, that book could have became one of those self help books about looking in front of you. Um, and I get the sense that it was important to you that it was not like that, that it did have a little bit more, uh, poetics to it, uh, and a little bit more thoughtfulness in how you talk about this.
1: Yeah. I think maybe like one, one thing that's, uh, helps explain the weirdness of that is, um, You know, like, so I think Malcolm Harris's blurb on the, on the book cover, I'm looking at it right now. Mm. He says like, oh yeah, it's a self-help for the collectively minded. Um, Right. And, you know, one of the things that I'm like really pushing against in the book is the cult of individuality and even like what you think is yourself. Um, And so like, I'm kind of trying to imagine what the, the opposite of a personal brand is like. Uh, mm. if you were to follow all of your algorithmically recommended things, then you would sort of, um, you know, in my thought experiment, like you would just become a kind of like static and stable um, set of preferences. Right, right. It's really easy to advertise to uh, And that's also like a very, I think like a lonely existence because you're never really like encountering anything outside of yourself. Um, and so I think it it's the self-help thing, like, like it both is and it isn't because if you, if you let go of the sort of uh, like stable bounded ego, like model of the individual um, and you recognize the sort of more like ecological model of the self, then like the term self-help doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Right. 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 So that's, I think that's what self-help for the collectively minded like means. Um, And I totally agree with that characterization.
0: What I liked about the book is that, this was a book that I think also could have very easily been a book that was kind of against technology, against social media, uh, and it isn't that. Um, and it's like you said, like the, the thing I took from it is that there are these networks that exist right in front of us, <laughs> uh, and that we sometimes spend so much time trying to connect with people online uh, but we can also just kind of connect with our neighbors and that, and that shouldn't sound radical, but somehow it kind of does.
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And no, it's really, I mean, I, it's something I still think about. Um, I went to this event a couple nights ago that was part of something called labor fest, which is like a, mm. uh, a month long, uh, series of events around, uh, you know, labor stuff and it's it was originally started to commemorate the general strike, which is which I write about in the book. Right. Um, and of course I found out about it from, you know, a pamphlet at, at KPFA, which is like our local, you know, radio station in Berkeley. Um, and anyway, so I, I went um, I went to that event and uh, it was like in a union hall that I and I had never been in there before. I didn't even know where it was. And it was just I don't know, it was I kept thinking afterwards about like why Because before, when I found out about it, I wanted to go because it was about um, the gig economy. Like, they were having three speakers talk about, like, organizing Uber and Lyft drivers and, um, like, IT workers and, like, making this direct connection to, like, you know, this era of the general strike. And, um, And that's something that I'm interested in for my own sort of research purposes. But I was like, well you know, maybe, you know, do I have to go to this event or can I just read about it? Or can I just like read about these things Mm. or like read the the book that this guy wrote or whatever. And kind of at the last minute I was like, no, I I should just go. I need to go to this event. So I went there and it was just, you know, it's like it, the, the diversity of the crowd made me really embarrassed about kind of the rest of my life. You know, like Mm. I was just like, like you know, and, and diverse in every way, like all, you know, backgrounds and ages and, um, and it was, like, people, you know, like, having an actual conversation about <laughs> trying to do something, like, about actual right. legislation. Um, and, it, like, you know, everyone was concerned, but there wasn't, like, no one was, like, freaking out. Like, it was just, like, no, we're just going to have this conversation about this. And it was, like, two hours long. And I left, and I remember, like, I looked at my phone, and I just, I happened to open Twitter, and the top, um, the top of Twitter moments was, like, the headline was, like, Fans defend Jason Momoa's like dad bod (laughs) photos or something like that. Like, it was so surreal. Like, I was like, oh my God. Like, you know, I just left this room with like, and the room is like, I can't describe, like, the room could not be any more different from Twitter. Like, it was just, it was an old building, you know, it had this kind of like, just like a bunch of chairs, you know, it was like very. Um, I don't know, it was just like a normal space, if that makes sense, <laughs> which is like yeah, yeah, normal yeah. people. And, um, and I was just like, wow, this is such a huge disconnect. And it made me like, I just it made me feel very, uh, I don't know, like my um, ex- experience of the world was just like, so narrow. And yet, like, yeah. if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you, you start to think like, everything exists there. And you think you're getting a variety of context right. and information. I was like,
0: wow, no, I'm really not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I, I, a I 100 f- percent know exactly what you're talking about. And I have definitely been in situations where I felt <laughs> that same way. Like, like the the um the like blinders that are blocking your peripheral vision have suddenly mm-hmm. <laughs> been taken off. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how how do you think about these ideas, um, both what you just said, but also these larger ideas that you talk about in the book within, how do they relate to your own artwork, I guess. Um, and also, also as a teacher, how do you, how does this relate to things that you're thinking about in the classroom and talking to your students about, and are those even related?
1: Yeah, I think they are. I mean, um, you know, I say that I was embarrassed by that moment, but I also found it very exhilarating because it means that there's, right, you know, like something that I, this whole, you know, world that I don't know about. And, and there's like so much that I could learn, um, you know, very quickly, like the learning curve would be really steep for me. Um, and so I think that I just personally like seek out that feeling. And then mm. I think that's what I, it that's what motivates a lot of my artwork and is also what I'm trying to to create for the viewer so you know when I put things on shelves (laughs) um when I was an artist in residence at the dump like that was about you know like I just spent three months monomaniacally researching the manufacturing origins and like all of the information about these 200 objects that were thrown away And, and now I want you to have the same experience that I had you know Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so they were on shelves and they had, you know, little tags that people could scan and get all of that information. So you could stand in front of an object and look at street view of the factory or watch the commercial on YouTube. And I was really pleased that some people, once they kind of figured out what the whole conceit was, they not only went down the line, they were scanning every single object. Then they, Mm -hmm. they ran out of time. So they came back the next day you know, to finish, you know, reading about them. That's great. And, and like that, I think that was like one of my most, I mean, I felt like actually successful in that moment in what I was trying to do. Um, yeah. and so I, you know, I try to collect examples of, um, you know, given that both of my classes are about basically digital art or design.
0: Okay. Yeah, um, that was my next question is what also kind of, what kind of students are you? so i teaching what kind of classes
1: yeah they're non typically non-art majors once in a while get an art major but um they they also um tend to be from outside of the humanities um Mm -hmm. and so i i i try to give them a lot of examples of technologically mediated experiences or or works that ultimately work to kind of like give you more access to something that's already there, like the physical world. Um, I see. And, you know, like as many examples as they can um, give them of that um, versus like something that is sort of like digital, like a digital dead end kind of, you know, like 3d scanning for the sake of 3d scanning or something like that. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And I think like probably one of my favorite moments as a teacher, you know, this is my end of my fifth year Um, just happened last quarter where I had a student check out a microscope camera from the, from we have a bunch of like fancy things you can check out in the art department. And, um, and so it's a, it's a microscope, but it, but you can sort of like detach this thing and uh, move it around and uh, you know, look at weird stuff. And so um, he made this like weird, it looks like an abstract film. Kind of, and it's set to um, this like classical piece from Fantasia, um, and uh, like we all we, it was a it was really beautiful. And then afterwards, you know, no one knew knew no one had he hadn't said anything about the microscope camera yet. And then okay. we watched it we're like wow, it's beautiful. What was that? And he was like, oh, that was my hair. And he had been moving the camera around in his hair, like <laughs> to, oh, to to this music. It, which is, that's amazing in, in and of itself. But then afterwards, someone was like, oh, what's that folder on your computer? And he's like, oh, that's just like some, you know, random like fun images I made with the, with the camera, like when I got it. And so he started going through them and he's like, here's some paprika and like, here's, you know, the carpet. Mm-hmm. And um and every time he would like spacebar preview one of these images like the entire room and this is a bunch of like tw- you know 20 21 year olds would like gasp with delight yeah. yeah um and then um someone was like oh did you do your skin and he was like yeah but like i'm not going to show that that's gross and they all just started chanting skin like, they were like skin 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 <laughs> and then he like opened it everyone was like oh you know <laughs> yeah like
0: yeah. it was
1: so like i don't know it was amazing but but it's a really good example of right, like of like that's a very um it's a very it's a yeah. digital art class. It's using you know, digital tools, but it is it is ultimately about like some weird, like granular details of something that's seemingly banal and everyday. And like that's that's what I'm like really trying to get across in that class.
0: I guess I, I we should go back a little bit. So how did you start teaching? Was that something you were always interested in
1: um in doing? I I was, but I didn't actually I didn't think that I was going to be able to, or maybe I just like wasn't expecting to at the time. Um, Okay. Yeah. I, I had been working at um, gap corporate for three years
0: um,
1: (laughs) and just kind of marking time there. Um, And then, yeah, like, I guess just the circumstances of it were very accidental. I um, SFAI, you know, I think most schools have to do this where they have like an outside uh, kind of like panel of, Uh, You know, usually like professors from other schools will come Mm -hmm. and kind of like um, appraise different departments. So they'll have students from that department come in like past and present and they'll present their work. And then these two outside people, two or three, will provide some sort of feedback or make an assessment or something like that. Um, And so I met the person who hired me when I went back to SFAI for their kind of design and technology um, evaluation or whatever. Um, and I don't know, maybe I would have met her eventually anyway, but, uh, it was very fortuitous and, uh, I gave a talk in her class, which is now the class I'm teaching. Um, and yeah, I just tried to do a really good job and, (laughs) um, then, you know, something opened up. So, uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) it was was just like a lot of like really, yeah. Uh, good timing, right time, right place.
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, the re- the reason I ask is because I, I I'm curious about the the experience of teaching. And even the story you told about the the microscope camera, I think is very connected to the book and the ideas of the book. and i'm I'm the thing that I'm wondering about is how the the experience of teaching influenced how you think about these ideas, because I, I, for me, as a as a new teacher, I've been teaching for four years. Um, so about the same time, each year for me, each time I start a new class, it's, it's a back to trying to notice things again. It's, it's kind of really seeing, okay, who's in this room right now and how do I respond to them? It's very much about the ideas of the book, I think in a, in a sort of closed environment. Is that similar to you?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, And, you know, I dedicated the book to my students, um, Mm -hmm, because I kind of feel like I wrote it for them, um, like out Mm -hmm. of almost a sense of like maternal concern, um, because I, I had just like observed the kind of the pitch of like stress and anxiety going up, um, over, you know, the time that I've been there and, uh, I think I see it especially because I'm teaching an art class, again, to pe- you know, students not in, in the humanities. And uh, I was finding that it would sometimes take a lot of coaxing and encouragement to basically tell someone who thinks that they've gotten to where they are by jumping through all the hoops in exactly the right way that that they need right. to do something where there isn't a right answer and there's no optimal way to do it. And right. like, might not even be examples of someone having done that before, you know, um, and me trying, you know, like I'm in the background being like, it should be fun. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's actually yeah. really hard. Um, and so, uh, and then, and then I was also noticing that, you know, because I don't know what the rest of their schedules look like, but it sometimes seemed like the, this class was like a place where they could express some of the feelings mm-hmm. that they were having. Um, I remember, like one year they one of my classes they have to choose a theme to uh to make all of their work about and someone's theme was just averageness and oh. and when and when she said the word averageness I felt like everyone in the room like sighed <laughs> you know yeah. um, so yeah. i think it's i've had you know i've been thinking about it through um, uh-huh. just like seeing what they're thinking about and what they get subjected to and what they're expected to do, which is just, you know, unreasonable. Um, and I don't think that's specific yeah. to that school, but, um, yeah, so I, uh, and then I've also just noticed more recently that, um, my class works a lot better when I, when I do something that's closer to do nothing farming, which is what I talk about at the end of the book.
0: Oh yeah.
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, like, which is, uh. I mean, you already read about it, but it's it's basically a, a form of of farming that does still produce right. rice, but it it doesn't include, and it doesn't include flooding the fields. It requires no chemical or mechanical inputs. Um, and it's really just more about being an incredibly observant and attentive steward of a space mm. um, and, and kind of trying to achieve a balance, mm-hmm. but not like, it's, it's like the opposite of industrial farming, which is very overdetermined and kind of like- right this will produce this at this time, you know? Um, And so I've noticed that there, there were a couple uh, quarters where I felt like I um, wasn't doing enough work, you know, um, as Mm -hmm, as a teacher mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I would get worried. And then my, and then my students would do something like that microscope thing and I would be like, Oh, I just need to give them, I need to be available and I need to give them inspiring examples. And I need to make sure that like they're, Talking to each other and feel supported, but like that's kind of about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that came? I don't mean to draw too many connections between, you know, kind of your your when we started talking about this about your your interest in graphic design today, but the way you talked about that design technology program and feeling kind of lost and that you had no idea what you're supposed to be doing. Do you think that had an influence on how you are now thinking about teaching? Because it's kind of similar. In a way, you know what I mean? There is a certain openness to it yeah. um, that I find really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think so, probably. I mean, one thing that I that I really wished that I had had uh, when I was at SFAI that I, I don't think I necessarily got was, um, like, just, so, like, someone sort of, like, holding up some kind of support that, that is mm-hmm. almost, like, trailing behind you, like, You know, like okay, you you like go and do whatever it is, and without precedent, right? But like, whatever you do, like I I am here, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, Or or even something like, um, oh, you're starting to go in this new weird direction that you don't know anything about. Like, here are some artists that you know didn't do the same thing, but like maybe this would just be like helpful context for you, or even like just a a text to read. Like I I found the most um, helpful parts of of my grad program to be the critical theory classes which everyone else hated um, because they just wanted to make art. But, um, you know, I took that's, you know, where I first encountered Hannah Arendt and um, like, you know, just really uh, things that I still use to this day. So that's, I think that influences, you know, my teaching where it's like, I want to give them that empty open space at the same time that I understand that, especially given where they're coming from, like they need to feel supported and uh, not like you're setting them up to fail.
0: Yeah. I, this is a very selfish question because this is something I think about as a teacher all the time. And I have a feeling that you're good at what you're talking about, about kind of being that support system. And and it might be different in, in that I'm teaching in kind of graphic design programs where a lot of students are thinking about wanting to be a graphic designer and what do they need to know to have a good portfolio so they can get jobs as graphic designers. And I'm, I'm a teacher similar to you where I kind of want them to experiment and try different things. And don't put a lot of parameters around things. And I'm constantly trying to find this balance between basically three things. And I've talked about this with a bunch of people on the podcast, but I, I think you might have some interesting ideas around this. I'm, I'm kind of trying to balance between teaching them the things they need to know to get jobs, uh, creating a place where they can be experimental and feel comfortable and like they have that support system, but then also not creating a bunch of mini me's Mm-hmm. And just showing all the stuff that I'm interested in. And somebody like yourself who has a public persona, who has work that is known and has been shown. Um, how do you kind of show the things that you're interested in while also encouraging that experimentation? So everyone's not just doing, everyone's not just becoming a new Jenny, Yeah, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually show very little of my work in class um, because it's not, I find it increasingly irrelevant to what I'm teaching. Yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, I still, I'll still show it, but it's like, you know, for example, like one of my, the class that I basically inherited from the, from the person who hired me, um, that's kind of like a survey digital art class. And so oh. um, I actually, I, it's changed a lot now, but I, I originally got her slides um, at like her keynote mm-hmm. presentations. And so oh, my, my work was in the collage section which is really the only place it belongs, like in terms of like visual art, you know? So, um, and that's kind of, that's sort of similar in my other class as well. So I think it's, for me, it's like showing them such, it's almost like my book in a way, right? It's like, I'm showing them such a wide range of types of work from different types of people, like, you know, uh, old and new, that there isn't Mm -hmm. an obvious, it doesn't converge on any point And then I, I try to be very, I think there's a really, really big difference, um, between being, um, compelled by fear or being pulled by curiosity. And like, I, Mm. and I, it's really hard to move someone from one into the other. And like, like trying to do what you think you're supposed to do to get a good grade is being compelled by fear, in my opinion. Right. Um, it's like, um, you know, like, I mean, if you even see this, right. Like with kids, right. Like in elementary school where there's. Um, sometimes like they'll just get really into something. And if you have a good teacher, like that teacher will recognize that even if that's not on the curriculum, like that should be encouraged. Um, and so like, I try to be really like watch for like moments when I have a student who, you know, gets really into like one of the examples that I showed and they're like, I want, you know, I want to see more of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I have an assignment at the end of the class where, they have to give like, it's sort of a, sort of an artist talk, but they have to choose one of the artists that's been covered. In, and there's like so many, uh, cause they don't spend a whole lot of time on each one, but they, they will choose an artist that they feel has influenced or could influence their work. And they have to kind of give a talk, uh, doing further research on that artist, but connecting it to their own ideas and their own work. And, oh, yeah. and it kind of jumpstarts that process of like, um like a a lot of them have said things like oh I actually like really enjoyed researching this artist and now I want to know more or I want to research other artists so uh kind of like an artificial way of like (laughs) kind of encouraging that like um actually you know just deeply as a person wanting to know more about something rather than like trying to fulfill some sort of rubric as a student
0: I would hate myself if I didn't Talk to you about there's no such thing as a free watch. Um, this is not exaggeration when I tell you that this is one of my favorite pieces of writing of the last couple of years. Um, I have assigned this to my design students as a uh, lesson in branding, and <laughs> <the> kind of <laughs> artifice of branding. Yeah. I've assigned it to writing students to kind of talk about the structure and how you go about writing this piece. Um, and and so so for for listeners who don't don't know what this is about, you you kind of look at this phenomenon of these free watches on Instagram, and kind of it's really like an invest investigating where these come from and what they mean. Uh, but then you kind of raise all of these larger questions. How how did you get started on this piece and this kind of phenomenon, which again goes back to this kind of earlier thing we were talking about about kind of going down these rabbit holes and just kind of digging deeper. That piece is such a good example of that
1: um yeah that actually has um there's a funny story about behind how that started because it technically is an outgrowth of my residency at the dump um so i was at the dump and i had my project was called the bureau of suspended objects um which is a one-person bureau um (laughs) that researches discarded (laughs) objects and uh, so after I left the dump, I, I kind of did a couple different residencies um, in different places as the Bureau, uh, where I would mm. accept pre-trash from people. So that's things that they oh. still own, but mean to get rid of. And so I'm sort of doing them a favor. And, but I make them fill out this really bureaucratic form that I modeled after the W-2. Um, oh, I love that. and it's carbon <laughs> copy actually. And, uh, that is amazing. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny cause so it's,
0: how do you even get something printed? It's how copy. do you even get carbon copy paper printed?
1: Um, you know, I, the, the copy place in Palo Alto like happened to have options. <laughs> so it's, it's a little, expensive, That's but awesome. yeah. Um, so the questions are all like, you know, uh, where did you get this? Why did you get rid of it? What's your guilt level? One to 10, Um, and I found that the overwhelming, uh, majority of pre trash is gifts. So, um, Mm -hmm. that's sort of interesting in and of itself, but, um, and so I had done that and my, uh, two friends of mine were running this thing called the museum of capitalism, uh, which was a, uh, it, it basically ran all summer. Um, uh, it was a, and they got a, a museum grant to do this project. Um, it was a pretty big installation of uh, artwork, and the conceit of the whole thing was sort of like uh, looking at capitalism uh, as a disaster in the past, sort of like a rhetorical, yeah. like a speculative yeah, yeah, yeah. fiction kind it's of thing. So good. Yeah, it was really amazing. And they um, and actually, uh, uh, I also gave the talk "How to Do Nothing," the original talk um, at at that museum. Um, oh.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't realize. I did
1: like a practice run of it there um, before I O, and so I was going to be in residence as the bureau. And the original plan was that they had collected a box of things, artifacts um, from people, and they they had just been asking visitors to donate artifacts of capitalism, which is you know however Mm -hmm. you interpret
0: that. Mm
1: -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so they had these boxes of stuff, and I was going to come in and I was going to do the bureau thing um and research these Mm -hmm. objects and the very first object that i pulled out was the watch um and i never got past the watch (laughs) obviously um and uh and they had also given people forms and you know this form said like i got this watch on instagram even though i knew it was probably going to be you know a piece of shit like i i you know i feel so dumb now and it was like Mm -hmm. like tone of (laughs) rueful resignation Um, and yeah, I just started looking into it. And then I realized that it was kind of, you know, I have to say that everything that I was able to find something about at the dump or that someone gave me has something weird in the story. Um, so I was expecting that. I just wasn't expecting the rabbit hole to be that
0: long. Uh, like I said, you know, I assign this to students to talk about branding and how branding is, is, you know, a storytelling around a object or a company that is often, not that it's a lie, but it's made up to suggest something and I think the free watch phenomenon is that at its purest um yeah how, how do you how do you think about it now um kind of going down that rabbit hole and kind of finding all of this stuff do do you also see it as something about kind of design and branding and how we kind of live in the world and respond to objects
1: yeah I think for me it's about It's about branding and appearances, I think. Um, Mm, mm, Like this, I mean, I think my favorite parts of it are when like someone did like a bad Photoshop job of something, you know, where it's like, (laughs) oh no, anything can be anything. Um, And just, yeah, like how, as I mentioned in the piece, like there's actually not a, you can't draw a hard line between what's happening with these watches and, and regular branding. And, um, and so I think like that's, right. that's what it taught me was, uh, you know, like, Oh, like all, all of branding is a narrative and an image that is attached to a sort of arbitrary object. And I think I was kind of primed for that by being at the dump because mm. it's like, I'm seeing things. It's almost like, I was seeing things on the other side from branding. Like you have branding and that's what moves the object in the first place, like to get it to be bought. Right. And then, right. um, and then my, my whole like pre trash part of the project was showing how like something becomes trash when someone decides that it's trash. And it's a mm. super subjective mm. um, moment. Right. right. And then, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the exhibitions that I did uh, as the Bureau, I had collected these objects from people and I knew with each one like why someone had gotten rid of it in some cases like hated this object and then during the exhibition I let visitors claim one object each with like the red dot that you use in a gallery
0: oh yeah and
1: um hearing about why people were claiming things like after having heard why other people were getting rid of them was a really really amazing experience because I could see like these instances in which like two different people are seeing two different things when they look at the same object. Um, and so branding is just like, great. is just a, an attempt to manipulate that, that thing that already happens.
0: I love that. It's so good. I mean, I, I purposely saved talking about that essay for the end because I could, I could have talked to you about it for an hour and it would have just been me telling you how great of an essay it was and how much I love it. Uh, anyway, you just finished this book. It's great what are you thinking about now what's next for you where uh, where what rabbit hole are you <laughs> going down now
1: um, I am doing some research around uh, the history of how time became money um, because mm. I think the the mentality of time is money is an assumption it's something that I talk about in the book but I don't I'm talking about the downstream yeah. effects of it I'm not actually like talking about the history of how that came to be. Um yeah. and uh it's you know, it's been really fascinating just like reading about uh I just read a book about the exporting of Western colonial clock time to colonies that had, you know, obviously very different conceptions, indigenous like conceptions of time. Um and you know, sure. the history of something like Taylorism in the factory, like this. Mm-hmm. This is why I went to that labor thing the other day, is cause I'm, you know, trying to think about uh the the this yeah this longer process that starts you know it goes all the way back to even like monasteries Mm -hmm. and stuff um but i i see i feel like i'm especially in the bay area like living in this kind of dystopian extreme version of that like the extreme end of that that you know with things like uh you know task rabbit and and uh pretty much all gig work so um that's my my current rabbit
0: hole. Yeah, that's interesting, it is—it's kind of a very logical continuation of how to do nothing, because so much of that, it, like you said, is not mentioned in the book. is Is just this kind of cult of productivity, um, and always having to get things done.
1: Yeah, and the the kind of um, you know something I didn't really appreciate until I started doing this research was um, how much of it is tied to the Protestant work ethic, um, mm. which is you know like mm. this. Uh, yeah, like it's, it's like, I was reading this like list of, you know, basically, uh, elements of the Protestant work ethic and they sound like something that would be posted in a startup (laughs) where it's like, it's like you, you, you're supposed to work really hard and amass lots of wealth, but you're not supposed to flaunt it. I was just like, Oh, that's the hoodie. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but it's a sort of, it's a, it's like the religion of work. Um, and yeah. Uh, it was really eye-opening for me to see that that it has, like that explains like why even if you knew you didn't have to work, you would still feel sort of like morally impelled to work and some people would still feel morally impelled to work really hard.
0: My last question, this is a question that I use to to end all of these conversations. Um, what are some some books or authors or writers who have kind of influenced how you think about all of this that we've been talking about, whether that is you know kind of um uh influences on the book h- how you think about teaching your own work who are the the people that you kind of look to or the books you look to as as models of that
1: mm, let's see that's hard because there's so many um <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: or even just or even just people that you're reading right now too it doesn't have to be like the 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 jenny odell canonical right right um,
1: text. yeah i um so i'm right now i'm in the middle of technics and civilization by mumford um and i think that that's something that anyone who works in or near technology should read um because it's kind of this like a really um it was written in the 30s i think um but it's this it's it's this like history of technology that that could be very dry but it just has so many weird moments in it and just like just like really strange, like things that you would, I don't know. Like, for example, this is where I learned that like when uh, glass windows became commonplace that they were so expensive that people would take the windows out and store them away when they left their house. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> you know? I did not know that. <laughs> um,
1: but, uh, just like, I don't know. Like, it's just, uh, there's another book, uh, Oh, what is it called? River of Shadows by Rebecca Soling. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you like that I book, love that book. If, you, if you like that book, okay. then I think you would enjoy this. I mean, it's really, it's quite uh, hefty. It's a tome.
0: Uh, it's been okay. a I'm adding it. it to my list right now. Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, let's see. I also have been recently turned on to um, this German philosopher named uh, uh, Byung-Chul Han um
0: i don't know who that is and i think
1: he's most well known for the burnout society which i still haven't read um but multiple people who read my book recommended him to me uh and then i gave a reading in point Reyes, and the bookstore owner just gave me a free copy of the agony of eros which is a really short book it's almost like an essay um he wrote and it's uh, it's like i read it I, i understand why he gave it to me i'm like uh maybe it's good that I didn't have it before I wrote my book cuz I, I have so many <laughs> sources in my book so I just like didn't need any more but um yeah. but he ha- he has like such any he, he talks about uh you know Martin Buber who I also talk about in my book okay. but yep. but yep. the the agony of eros is about like basically sort of desire and and like eros and like curiosity being increasingly impossible in a situation where you think that everything is accessible and visible to you um and mm. that uh, the more sort of you know access imagine access you have to this mysterious other like the more you're actually pushing them away or they're becoming inaccessible to you um and i, I don't know it's just uh, such a good description of i think what i was trying to say in my book is lost when you um become this sort of like stable algorithmically determined yeah. personal brand is that you'll only encounter sort of reflections of yourself everywhere else and that that's kind of a very lonely and depressing place to be
0: I don't mean to end this on such a dark (laughs) (laughs) depressing (laughs) note Um, but I really I I, aside from the depressing ending I really enjoyed this conversation I'm a big fan of your work I loved the book um, and and your work in general I was really excited for this I thought this turned out great thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast yeah thank
1: you my pleasure
0: This episode was recorded on July 12th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.